0: Like being comfortable in who you are, I think is important on so many levels and it it helps with reducing the stuff that you buy.
1: Hey everyone, you're listening to the 2M Creative Labs podcast. This podcast is about learning from the stories and the processes that creatives share with us on their pursuit of their passions. Today we talk to Brent Bigelow, who runs Bigelow Woodcraft in Winnipeg building small batch goods and designing furniture, Brent shares his perspectives on design and environmentalism, over consumption and minimalism, as well as his journey in running a business. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode and I just wanted to say a big shout out and thanks to our guest today. Uh, maybe you can go ahead and introduce yourself who you
0: are and what you do. Sure, uh, my name is Brent Biglow. I have a woodworking business called biglow woodcraft i design furniture and build small batch goods for the home
1: that's awesome um we reached out to you because you had listened to a previous podcast but coincidentally serena has actually already spoken to you in the past mm-hmm. um, and you did a small little small little project that yeah uh,
0: um, she had designed some I think the whole brand of a new restaurant, right?
2: I think so, yeah.
0: And I took the logos from her. She found me to make these wooden menu boards for them, and we had the logos laser etched into them, and mm-hmm. that, was, that was that.
1: That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I'll eventually kind of ask you a little bit more about that project. But um, I guess just to get started, how did you sort of get into what you do now with woodworking and, you know, designing?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the shortest version of this long story. It's, it's kind of something that's been in me forever. Like I just was always building things and creating things as a kid. And I originally went to university with the goal of becoming an architect. And I went through three semesters of that and just found myself not fitting into university so well. And I was young and immature but whatever i so i dropped out and i went into carpentry and i was an apprentice for about a year and did antique home restoration which was really interesting and i actually loved the work and i probably would have stayed longer than a year but uh there were some other people at the company that didn't make it the greatest place to work but i stayed for a while i learned a lot and was planning on pursuing that, but uh, ultimately started to get the itch to start a business of my own. And so I went to business school at U of W. And again, three semesters found I didn't really fit into the university life so well. And I was daydreaming in class about different products that I'd love to bring to market. And Like sitting there reading the textbook about like the traits that a typical entrepreneur has. And I'm just like, is
2: this me?
0: Like, (laughs) why am I here reading this about what I could be doing otherwise? Like they literally teach you what entrepreneurs do and how they drop out of school and try things.
2: Yeah. I was in business school for two years and same experience. It was the worst. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I I almost feel like that reinforced the itch. And at a certain point, you look at how much it costs to stay in school and how much it might cost to start a business. And it just makes sense. So um, I started a business and it's been four and a bit years now. And like everything I think about, everything has changed entirely since then for sure. But I'm really happy I started what I did because a lot of that knowledge is very experiential. Um, and so I'm further along in, in knowing that that decision was the right one, I guess,
1: because
0: mm-hmm. there was a lot of self-doubt in the beginning that I had to sort of stomp out.
1: Yeah, well, for sure. And I think that's pretty natural when it comes to like jumping out of school, which is you kind of get told how to do things and like mm-hmm. just follow along the certain path that's been laid out versus jumping straight into the deep end, right? And mm-hmm. maybe you talk to me a little bit more of the initial doubts that were kind of in your mind. Like,
0: um, I think. I never really felt comfortable charging as much as I needed to charge because I never felt like a professional. Um, And it was sort of a long, long, slow path to realizing that I actually did have skills that people would value and pay for. And even still, some of those uh, realizations could probably happen a little quicker. But uh, there was just a long time where I felt like, who am I? I'm just some guy who knows how to use woodworking tools as good as the next guy. And even then, at that point, I didn't even know as well as I do now, obviously. But uh, yeah, just feeling like, like how could I possibly charge this much for my work? Mm-hmm. Um, but now I feel a lot more comfortable in that. I've spent years just working with wood, practicing, honing my craft, and studying other people who have come before me and what they have learned and how they operate things and different techniques, like there's such a vast amount of knowledge on this. Like it's it's something that's existed for thousands of years. Basically, for hundred to two hundred thousand years, humans have been creating some kind of something out of wood, and so there is a ton of history to study and what different tools existed through the ages and how people use things. And like in the last hundred or two hundred years, we've kind of created efficiencies and new types of tools that make things easier, but maybe have some downsides that we don't notice at the time. And then looking back on it, we find, oh, the traditional method of doing this or that was actually better for this reason. And so I don't know, I find I find myself really fascinated with the history of it and digging into why we do what we do with wood and creating my own style from that
1: mm-hmm. yeah and you take a lot of influences from like previous like traditional ways of doing things too right and trying to bring it into your own craft mm-hmm. um, and that's i think that's super fascinating and like i've never been like a handy person really mm-hmm. i mean i've done like carpentry before and just kind of been there as like a job oh. but when you really look into like the craftsmanship type of things that you do like there is a lot more like attention to detail Mm -hmm. i suppose and it's even i guess just like to bring it back to more of a like general like entrepreneurship and like skills approach like it's hard to kind of evaluate that as some sort of number that you would charge i think
0: yeah it is and it's I guess there are there are precedents in renovations, and there are precedents in building decks and stuff like that. You can go and get five quotes from somebody who builds a deck and pick the middle quote, um, and generally get something good. And whereas with furniture design, you're you're not only picking a craftsman who can use tools in an accurate way and Produce joinery, that's going to hold for a hundred years. You're also picking somebody's artistic eye and their actual design ability. And so to put those two things together, like I can't charge, you know, a carpenter's rate and a designer's rate added together. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, maybe someday that would be really cool, but <laughs> I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that right now. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, $200 an hour and thanks like (laughs) can't do it i would feel like a fool Mm -hmm. but it is hard to find that uh that number and in the design time especially i feel pretty uncomfortable like spending extra time designing and then charging for that but i think that's kind of the next Mm -hmm. frontier i need to address is like how do i charge for that properly
1: right that's interesting so one question i had was when you when Serena came with her vision for these menu boards, um, um, how did that kind of work out? Because I think you had yes. some sort of like design already in mind to keep it minimal and simple, but still.
2: Yes, I think it was like a baseboard and then a small thing that was nailed down, something like that. Oh, really? Was it? I don't know.
0: Um, This was a while I don't leg. know <laughs> if it was two parts or not. It could have been, but I, I definitely remember you had the whole thing like pretty well designed already and Mm -hmm. so right from there i think i maybe had one or two questions and then was able to just quote right away Um, i find myself doing like maybe a third of my jobs are like that and two-thirds need more design attention Mm -hmm. and it's kind of nice to to go back and forth between the two right but uh yeah you had you had like inspiration photos and you had your measurements and you knew you wanted uh rounded corners we talked a little bit about the hardware i remember
2: i think so yeah
0: yeah and then we picked the color and that was that i think
1: interesting so you so people do come in with their own sort of design and do people ever come in with like something that's so unreasonably like even like physically impossible then yeah. you sort of have to <laughs> 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 like because i mean it's Sometimes you would talk about like designing furniture, but we don't really know if it's structurally sound
0: or even oh, like, I
2: have no can idea you can do something
0: like this, right? Well, I mean, unfortunately for some of my earlier clients, uh, I didn't really realize some things about that, like the structural integrity. like it's one thing to just be able to hold weight on top of it, but to take you know a shove from all different angles, Uh, I find a lot of newbies, myself included, when I was a newbie, you'd make a table and then you'd push on it from one direction and it just like it wiggles back and forth like significantly. Mm -hmm. And you realize you need to brace it in both directions. You can't just have like there's a lot of um, live edge tables with bolt on legs, which is fine. It's a great way to get a natural product into your house, bolt on powder-coated steel legs are inexpensive. I'm not bashing it. I'll make those for people all day. But (laughs) a lot of the leg designs that come from somebody's Etsy store or something, they're really only braced in one way. And so those tables are wobbly. And I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you have a wobbly table or you just ordered legs like that, but there's there's a little bit of consideration that has to go into the structural integrity of a piece and this diy culture right now is kind of keeping that alive in some ways whereas if the professionals were in charge of all the table legs we wouldn't have that problem i guess i don't know that's not really what i mean to say but
1: (laughs) yeah it's it's cool to be able to i mean even like for me, like, yeah, I just go the YouTube and look at IKEA hacks or something absurd yeah. and like, okay, like this works for that person. And it's not so uh, intimidating to approach. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, having somebody that has that experience look at it and be like, this won't last. You yeah. know, like if you move it in this way, you're screwed. And I might not even know that from just observing from a distance. Mm-hmm. And... I think that's pretty important like with anything that we buy tables or like couches or just like equipment is that you want it to last.
0: Yeah. You want to be able to keep it as long as you can. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. Three things now. Sorry. The first, I am a huge advocate for DIY for doing things yourself finding the materials in your own life already or cheaper alternatives out there and putting it all together yourself to get something that is designed for you and you will cherish even more than if you bought something like the value you assign to something that you put your own efforts into is always higher that that's great i think it's important to have an inherent value in the things that you have in your life so that you're reducing your waste. You're not buying a coffee table every six years. Generally, if you make a coffee table and you do a pretty good job, you're probably going to keep it forever and you might give it to your kid or something. And so I'd much rather hear that than get an order for a coffee table. The second thing is like you said, you could observe a table that somebody's made and kind of assume that it's going to work out in this way and put it together and not realize like, oh, the one you observed actually kind of had this hidden joint or this small little detail that keeps it from wobbling in that one direction. I like to be a source of information for people. Like my friends I'd like to think feel comfortable to text me and have these long conversations. Like I have a few friends that I'll just end up texting for half an hour straight because we're just talking about this project they want to do. It's like, that's great. I would much rather be helpful than whatever the alternative is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I forgot the third.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll eventually get back to it. I think it's one thing I wanted to ask was because you are a big advocate for DIY stuff.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Does it ever kind of come into clash with like, well, if people can do it themselves, then why would they come to me in a way? Or has it ever come Um, into that kind of space when you were early on
0: and maybe not so much now? I just find myself never really concerned about competition in any capacity. Like I'm one person, like I only need to make two or three pieces of furniture a month to be doing fine. And so there's big businesses like Ikea and The Brick and whatever that they're trying to eat each other's market share all the time and competing. And like I don't really have any competitors. There's at least 15 other woodworkers in Winnipeg that I know of that are doing the same thing as me. And I'm never losing a client to them. You know, I get clients, like I said earlier, I've got two thirds that are generally interested in some design as well as the building of it. And then one third that has a design already. And of those one third, I would say I lose like 30, 40% of the leads that come in because they're just price shopping and they're just tire kicking. But then the people who seek me out for my design ability and the things I talk about online and the, you know, clever joints that lead to strong, long lasting goods and whatever aesthetic detail and style that I have, those people are seeking me out for those things. And I generally get those jobs. And I don't feel like I live in a city small enough that I would have to worry about how many of those there are. Yeah. I just don't really think about competition because I never want to be a huge company that's competing with other huge companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: That's such a good mentality to have, I think, and it keeps everything healthy. And you're yeah. always in this weird race with other people that aren't necessarily even trying to compete with you. And mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. When it comes to Ooh. well, making things last, and we wanted, I want to talk about a little bit more on overconsumption and environmentalism and that's i think a big topic that you advocate for is Mm to well obviously like make sure that things last for a long time when you're in a point where you're also trying to sell stuff right Mm -hmm. like how do you kind of steer it in a way that like you don't need to buy all of these things yet i'm making all of these things um
0: yeah that's it's an important consideration for sure um the act of consumption is a big problem. We are being trained more and more to just buy more things. And we can talk about fast fashion all day, but what about fast furniture? You know, like that's, that's a big problem. There are trend afflicted pieces of furniture out there everywhere being marketed just all the time. And so, although I'm making new pieces, and also in a way advocating for consumption by selling those pieces. I think that the overall footprint of a piece that I sell might take the place of three pieces that they might buy otherwise. So if I can convince somebody to buy something from me instead of something that's a quarter of the price from Ikea. For the record, Ikea is doing a lot of great things. I don't have a problem with them. They're just the easy, relatable, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) consumption-based, yeah. Um, When it comes down to like a coffee table is always an easy example. Hardwood is a great building material to start with. It comes from trees that by the time they're mature, they've soaked in so much carbon from the atmosphere and locked it away in the wood. And then we mill it into usable furniture stock and we turn it into furniture. So by the time you have that product in your house, that's got carbon from the atmosphere inside of it. That's pretty remarkable. If you take that and you keep it for 100 years, that is a way better choice than going to IKEA and getting something that is mostly sawdust and glue. Although like using sawdust and glue to make new materials is great also because you're reducing the waste and the whatever you (laughs) buy something from ikea that's like plasticky and does not have environmental regenerative qualities like wood from a forest and you replace it even in 10 years like 10 years is pretty good for a cheap table if you can get 10 years out of a cheap table you're doing good keep keep doing that but if you do that 10 times in the time that one coffee table lasts, like that's a far more environmental choice to make in the beginning, and it's not going to cost ten times as much. It's going to cost three or four times as much.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good way to look at it in a long term kind of expense too, right? right. And because we always talk about things like leather uh, boots, for instance. Ah, uh, yes. Right, and like vegan vegan leather or some sort of material that is very friendly in the short term Mm -hmm. but you do have to consider how often you're going to replace that which adds up to not just like a price-wise cost but Mm -hmm. the footprint cost as well Mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's tricky like i guess to kind of make that decision where it's like oh i'm only Mm -hmm. spending 200 dollars on a coffee table but over the course of like 10 years i'm actually going to be spending 10 times that if Mm -hmm.
0: if right Um, It's funny you bring up vegan leather. So I have regular cow leather things, but I also have some vegan leather things. And like, I try to reduce my, like the cow problem is a big problem. Uh, The red meat problem is a big problem, but I was reading something a while ago and I don't quite remember it, but because of this major shift to vegan leather, we're actually just burning leather cow hides because we're creating so much beef and there's so much leather left over and there isn't as much demand in some parts of the world for it anymore because of the vegan leather trend which is great obviously but when the leather already exists and we're just wasting it and now we're creating a plastic leather product to replace that leather that already exists it's kind of a a funny catch 22 i guess yeah i think actually that That dovetails nicely with uh, the furniture.
1: I love the fact that he used the term. I just popped into my head. (laughs) This is perfect. (laughs) Um,
0: Like every problem is so complicated and complex. And it has so many moving parts to it. Like you can't take what anybody says. Like this is the right way to do it for this, this, and this reason. There's a million other components to that decision. Like vegan leather it's positive for 18 reasons but like using up the leather that's already there because we have such a like terrible beef industry is kind of important as well so it's the same with furniture if there are tables available somewhere that are made in a less you know environmentally friendly way they're already there so if you like it you should use it
2: well, that's why I like the idea of secondhand because then it exists. You buy it; it's fine versus mm-hmm. creating um, new purchases from new items or demand for new items. Mm-hmm. It's just nicer.
0: Oh, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Secondhand is great. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you ever really? see your stuff in the secondhand store? I'm actually out of university. Uh,
0: I would be okay with that, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently I designed these care guides. And so it mostly goes through the finish on the product and how to care for stains and scuffs and everything. But at the end, it it says like, if you can ultimately decide that this is no longer something you like, then please at least go to the effort to get it to somebody who will still appreciate it. It would be way more desirable to see this piece in a thrift store than in a landfill or something. That's very true or even collecting dust in some storage room like mm-hmm. everybody has those closets or those rooms or those drawers and it's like that's
2: everything insane. in there still has
0: value like mm-hmm. get it get it to somebody who will value it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very minimalist principle I think.
0: Yeah, minimalism is attractive but it's super hard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mhm.
1: What are your thoughts on? I guess now that we're segueing into minimalism, like how do you kind of see minimalism and implement it into either your life or your business? Um, maybe just some thoughts on that.
0: Um, ideally, we should all be minimal, minimal minimalists. I think, like we have gone through seventy five years of. Being told that we need more and we need the newer thing and the better thing. And none of that messaging has ever talked about what we do with the thing that we're replacing. And so we're just spending all this time being influenced and even the strongest people like I'm not counting myself out of this. Like every human being that there is, is being advertised to at an alarming rate that is unprecedented. And it's only in the last few years, I want to say, that anybody is talking about minimalism or what to do with the things we're replacing on any scale that's reaching any mass of people. And so here we are with our junk rooms and our junk closets, and we still want new things, you know? Like people are buying bigger houses rather than realizing what they actually need and what they need space for. And I think that's a big problem. And because it's so systemic, you can't really escape that circle uh, without kind of addressing it all at once, like your inputs and your outputs. Yeah, it's a vicious circle for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I love the movement that we're kind of seeing in terms of minimalism. And there's you ever heard of like the minimalism challenge where you would like get rid of one thing in one day and then the next day you get rid of two?
0: And oh, wow. you do it for a
1: month and then it goes on till you get rid of so much. And um, I try to keep things very like empty for the most <laughs> All part. All you
2: own is cameras and plants, <laughs> exactly.
1: And because I mean, I've always seen minimalism as just like what. What matters, you know, like it, mm-hmm. like I don't really look at it as like having less things per se, but it's just like having less things that don't matter as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, like for me as a creative, like I need I need camera gear mm-hmm. or running a podcast. I need all these microphones. and for um for a base observance of minimalism, it's just like, oh, you're buying so much stuff, you're buying so much equipment.' I'm like, but I'm also not buying like clothes as much or buying new furniture as much. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, I, that's how I see it. And yeah, you know, like picking and choosing what you're trying to collect and what you're actually cutting down on.
2: So how do you determine what you need? Cause I think you had mentioned you have to pare down into what you need.
0: Uh, it's, it's <laughs> a, like a nearly impossible task for most, I think. And, like there's, there's all kinds of challenges, like you say, and then there's, you hear of people, what is it? They lay out their closet in a way where they put something on a hanger or they turn the hangers the other way. And then when they finally wear a shirt, they put it back in with the hook facing the other way. And so at the end of say three months, it's like, oh wow, there's eight shirts that I never turned the hanger on.
2: Oh, So cool.
0: I don't need them. Or maybe six months or a year, whatever it is, mm-hmm. whatever you're comfortable with. I think there's lots of techniques like that. The subreddit minimalism is a great resource for this that I I read sometimes when I feel like changing. Mm-hmm. But not everybody feels like changing all the time because change is hard, but change is good. So, yeah, there's there's lots of techniques like that. I personally, I just love to find things and decide, you know what, I don't need you at all. And I find that very like empowering to just know that I'm fine without these things and more than the accumulation of goods that I have, like, that's not me. I'm me, I have my relationships with people and I have the skills of my own that I've developed. And like, that's a reflection on me. It's not the things I have.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a very good way to look at it, yeah. And even for me personally, like, again, you said 75 years. And I can totally understand it. Like growing up, it's like, oh, you got to get all these things. You're eventually going to buy a home, have a car,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, have like a, like a bunch of rooms and a bunch of nice clothes. And I do remember growing up, it's like, oh, I want that. I want that. And I'll mm-hmm. eventually get all of these things. And as you sort of come to understand that you aren't the collection of those things and it's just... The skills you develop, the relationships that you make and the things that really are important to you, like that's the stuff that you want to keep because I mean, for me me personally, it's just very overwhelming to have a lot of stuff. Yeah. And there's definitely, you're right. Like there is something empowering about saying like, I don't need,
0: I don't need these things. Like being comfortable in who you are, I think is important on so many levels and it, it helps with reducing the stuff that you buy. Another thing I I just remembered. um, No, I don't even remember it now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I remember now. When choosing to buy something, thinking about if everybody made that decision, if every single person in the world made that decision, would the world be better or worse off? And so it's like if everybody just suddenly decided to buy a new set of mugs, even though they have mugs that work fine. It's like suddenly, I don't know, maybe mugs are a silly example, but if everybody in the world had as much stuff as the average North American, like we would be drowning in stuff.
2: I saw a stat where it was something like in North America, every household has about 300,000 items.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Uh, what?
2: Yeah, isn't that crazy?
1: Like, how do you fit 300,000 Also, items? who
2: counted all them? Yeah. them? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, if you consider, like, your drywall screws, your stuff, mm-hmm. I could see that maybe. Right. That is a lot. Mm-hmm. Right? But wow. I've definitely
2: been in houses that are enormous, like, three-story houses, and the people really only use the living room, and the kitchen, and maybe their bedrooms outside of just sleeping. But every other crevice is full filled, filled with stuff.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, another good example is like everyone's mom with all of these dishes and whatever, kitchen goods, whatever it is. They're like, oh, you'll need them when you... No, no, I won't. Like, <laughs> I will take a few because I would <laughs> like that, but I don't want a fully stocked 1995 kitchen <laughs> that doesn't even have room for... You know, like I'm not, I'm not buying a kitchen to stock with every single little utensil item that that's, that's another hot topic for me is all these like single use kitchen items. Like you basically just need a knife and a cutting board Yes. to do pretty much everything and a corkscrew. It's really hard to open wine with a knife.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The image of, I mean like my Filipino family and like my grandparents' house. So much stuff, like mm-hmm. cupboards mm-hmm. of dishes and all these things that don't even get used. And it's it's so mind-boggling how, like how much of this will just sit there mm-hmm. when you really could just pare it down to a knife and a cutting board and a corkscrew. Yeah, <laughs>
0: and an avocado slicer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes. What a ridiculous tool. Like, you use a spoon. <laughs> yes. Have you seen those? Yeah. Ooh, crazy.
2: They're <laughs> like those apple things that you hold over and you push oh, down. Yeah. And then yeah. there's wedges.
0: Those are so weird. See, like i i can understand if somebody is like oh i just i just love this thing it cuts apples perfectly for me or it cuts avocados perfectly i use it all the time like that's fine great good stuff but you don't need all of them like it's yeah a knife is fine
1: yeah i think when you kind of look at it and can actually honestly say like i use this all the time or like i love having this Mm -hmm. and like truthfully like if i did not have this like it would be a problem because I would constantly look for it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Like that is a legitimate scenario in which maybe I should have one. You know, like if you're constantly going to your kitchen and saying, I don't have a can opener. And because you're always opening cans for some reason, Mm -hmm. like it's totally okay to buy that thing. Yeah. But if you're buying it and used it once and is never seen ever again, but there's other tools in which you can like take advantage then that's maybe you start con- considering like, I have, I don't actually need these things, mm-hmm.
0: right? Uh, actually, to bring this back to woodworking, um, a big, I, I read this article on Core 77 over the weekend and it was written by a furniture maker and it was about all of these new tools that are designed to just, be like a multi-tool but for the homeowner that's in the store and is like they already have a hammer and a chisel and a rasp and whatever they have what they need but then there's like the new hotness from whatever tool company x and one example was a chisel with a rasp and if you don't know what a rasp is it's like a cheese grater for wood um, but basically it's a chisel with a rasp on the whole metal side of it and to use a rasp you use two hands and so now one hand is on a sharpened chisel edge and to use a chisel you often use two hands to line it up nicely so now your hand is on a cheese grater rasp side oh no (laughs) and it's like this is a real tool that's being marketed to you know diy homeowners whatever there are tons of tools like this and it's just needless marketing nonsense to try and sell more things and affect their bottom line. And if you talk to any professional before buying that, they would, they would laugh in your face or they'd kindly <laughs> let you know that you already have a chisel and a rasp and you should keep them separate. <laughs>
2: that's, <laughs> that's a great example. <laughs> it's absurd.
0: It's absurd. And that's probably the best example that I saw. But there, like, you could walk through a tool store uh with somebody who is fluent in tools and they could point everything out to you it's it's incredible and it's such a problem like we're wasting materials from the earth and then we're wasting advertising companies time and like for what literally nothing Mm -hmm. to hurt people's hands
1: Put them on a cheese grater. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Or let them know that they should only use one hand and do a poor job. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think the one thing that I love about you and your company is that you are educating your clients when it comes to anything involving the work that you do to reduce consumption, to reduce waste, and to make sure that things last, which is so completely backwards from what we understand Mm -hmm. now as a consumer. I think that's a mindset that everybody should kind of consider having is figure out how much you really need to make or how much you really need to sell and then just stick to that there's no need for this massive amount of growth that leads to all this waste
0: mm-hmm. right simon sinek do you know him he's yeah. he wrote start with why and leaders eat last which are two fantastic books Oh man, I just realized that w- the quote that I was going to bring up is not a Simon Sinek quote. <laughs> <laughs> but those are two it. great books and you should read them. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, what's his name now? Seth Godin. Mm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is marketing. Yes, this is marketing with Seth Godin. Yeah, another, another great uh, marketing specialist, I guess he would be. He has this podcast called Akimbo. And it's just great for freelancers, for anybody doing a craft and kind of running their own show, uh, small or big or probably not big, maybe medium. Um, and he really advocates for finding your like ideal 1,000 fans and no more than that. And if you're diluting your messaging and what you're saying so that it has more mass appeal and you're finding a wider audience of people who might care less, then you're always going to be trapped in this kind of circle of, you know, questioning what you're doing and like having to grow and having to dilute and dilute and dilute. And so I really like that idea of just finding your audience 1000 fans that will support your business they'll pay your bills you'll be able to do what makes you happy and if it grows from there that's fine too because at least it's going to grow in a genuine way and you're not losing sight of your why as simon sinek would say
1: there we go it <laughs> <laughs> <All around. laughs> yeah.
0: yeah that's
1: a good way to look at it and i've always wondered that with like our platform right is that we're bringing so many people from different walks of life different disciplines and it can feel that way where it's like it is very diluted because you have woodworking and then you have a designer like the last episode or you have a photographer coming in and it's a very broad Mm -hmm. sort of audience and yeah
0: you found (laughs) like like it's the creative labs podcast you're talking to creative people who all have you know, a few brain cells out of place or something. Like, like creative people are anomalous in that they all find these clever ways to combat motivation and life in general. And I think it's interesting to kind of just have these conversations and see what makes different people tick and using your framework, I guess, to formulate the interviews. It couldn't be diluted i don't think mhm yeah
1: That's a very encouraging way for me to look at it. And I like the the fact that you brought that up because you the only reason why like I personally saw you was because Michael put it on like previous one of the previous episodes, he put it on his story and he we actually talked about you a little bit, like I'm pretty sure off the record. Mm -hmm. And he's just kinda like, Yeah, like a friend of mine is a woodworker and I was like, Oh wait, like that sounds familiar. But you mentioned production value and just the fact that it was a very like high quality piece of content where as initially we're talking like oh everybody can just make a podcast and like it's a very low barrier of entry level and it's nice to kind of get something that like is a words of encouragement uh, to kind of keep going and to see that you are on the right path um, yeah. right yeah
0: i firmly believe that like like i was saying earlier it's just There are so many services and technologies that make it so easy to make a podcast now. And Mm -hmm. so anybody can definitely flip that switch and speak, but uh, you're doing something more and it's notable. So keep on keeping on.
1: Yeah, it means a lot. Um, How can somebody start to learn woodworking if they want to do a proper DIY job? And, like, what sort of fundamentals maybe that you can impart to somebody that said, like, I'm not really in the market to buy new things, but Mm -hmm. maybe I have a bunch of old stuff that I want to.
0: Interesting. Right. Um, it's pretty difficult to give advice for, like, the entirety of, like, a DIY project, I guess. Um, but maybe I'll think about... Like some mistakes that uh, first timers will do, I think is a good one is uh, using your shop vac. Put your shop vac on every tool that you're using in any way that you can. It sucks the dust out and it makes sanders work so much better. Um, take your time sanding. Sand for longer than you think every time, and don't push the the palm sander down into the piece too much. Let it do the work. I think. A big mistake that I even still make to this day, if I'm rushing, is I'm pushing it into the piece. And then you can't see all of the extra little swirls it's making. But then as soon as you throw your stain or your finish on, they all pop out and you think, Well, what what is that? How did I do that? And it's because you're pushing on the sander. Part of me wants to say, just get out there and do something and be happy with doing it again, (laughs) but also like, like do your research because everything is pretty easily doable, but there are certain mistakes that you might make if you don't do a little bit of research first. And so if you come up with a plan, I would say woodworking in general has a low barrier to entry to start. You can get a handsaw and, you know, a drill and That's pretty much all you need to make something. Mm -hmm. And so if you have an interest in it, uh, YouTube is a great resource. There's lots of people on YouTube that are at every different level of somebody's own intrigue in woodworking. So yeah, go for it. Like a wobbly table that you, if you imagine the three axis, X, Y, and Z on a piece that you make if you only have wood going mostly in line with two of those axis like it's gonna it's gonna be wobbly in the other direction Mm. so that's that's my general quick assessment of the problem
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes if i ever actually have to make another table then i will come to you and say hey
0: Sounds good. We can text yeah. for thirty minutes and then oh. and then you'll be set.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. these kinds of things where it's just sort of like verbally, just mm-hmm. all the thoughts kind of come into play. Do um, you have any other questions that you'd like to ask?
2: Uh, no, I don't think so.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, I guess yeah. just to kind of wrap up, like, is there any f- uh, final words of advice that you want to give to anybody that's listening out there?
0: Like Bigelow Woodcraft started as a furniture company and it's kind of grown into a design company and a small batch product company. Uh, and I can feel the pull kind of towards a more environmentalist, uh, role in educating customers and providing options that are accessible and good for the environment. Um, and i don't really know what that looks like from a business standpoint yet but it's always on my mind and so if you're interested in that and interested in furniture design uh, i think my website and my instagram are great resources to keep up with me trying to build a business out of what's in my brain uh i have biglowwoodcraft.com There is a biannual update on there that you can sign up for. It's twice a year. It's just what's going on, what I'm thinking about, what I'm going to do with the business. Um, It's not every six months. It's just twice a year. So whenever inspiration strikes, I, I think there are a lot of newsletters out there that are very regular and it's difficult to read all of them and it's probably difficult to write all of them. So I don't imagine they're as uh, full of good content as they could be. And so I'm actively trying to change that by writing something more uh, deep and insightful twice a year. And then there's my Instagram, Biglow Woodcraft. And that's it. That's me on the internet. That's awesome. Well,
1: thanks so much, Brent, for doing this and really appreciate it. And I think I learned a lot personally. Great. Um, Anything else you'd like to add, Serena? No, thank you. (laughs) Thank you
0: guys for having me. I think what you're doing here is great. And uh, I look forward to seeing who you have on next. Awesome, thanks so much, man. Thanks.
1: If you made it this far, thanks for listening to the episode. Consider giving us a rating on iTunes and subscribing to the podcast. And if you liked it, share with your friends. Word of mouth always helps. If you want to discuss anything you heard on this episode or the previous one, send us a message on Twitter at 2M Creative Labs, and we'll see you in the next one.